the difficulty is that our measuring metrics are, are way behind. They're, they're yeah. still so primitive. If we don't even know what these microbes are, are we really able to do a competent job of evaluating what the value is of the food? I would argue that there, it's very significant that our gut microbiome, which is a similarly complex universe that exists in our digestive system, co-evolved with soil microbiome over eons. So we developed as an animal over all of these eons, eating this food grown in soil. Mm -hmm. I believe they're completely complementary systems and, and we definitely need soil in order to have a healthy gut. We need a healthy gut in order to have a healthy body. I think that's also related to taste. And we go back to that question you asked about, well, why, does, why do our berries taste different? Why do they taste so good? And I'm and I continue with the feedback we get is extraordinary from, from all over, including from very sophisticated palates and professional chefs. And we get, we get an enormous positive feedback. And I'm asked that question constantly. And I don't have a, I don't have a great answer. But I, I think what makes the most sense to me is that our bodies know what's good for us. And we can be fooled. The, the the soil the food scientists are very sophisticated at this they're very good at it it's, it's like mcdonald's you can make a big beautiful blueberry big beautiful tomato you know you uh, very quickly that's like mcdonald's you can make somebody really big by feeding mcdonald's every day but i would i would argue that it's it's not the same thing it's really not same kind of food at all we we do have i think a natural a natural desire to eat what's good for us and when we have a good piece of produce, it tastes good. And that's an evolved uh, mechanism, feedback loop. If this tastes good, I'm going to have more of it. If I have more of it, my body's going to be healthier. I'll live longer. I'll reproduce. You know, it's the, it's the whole evolutionary chain. So I do think we like the taste of things that are good for us. And I, I see that all the time with, uh, with little kids. We, we have children eat our berries all the time. And they just light up. I think they know they their bodies know what's good for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have the science, but I really find it hard to believe that we can replicate that with a simplistic solution of, um, you know, some primary and secondary nutrients that we drip through a inert growth media. Welcome back to our podcast, Tasting Terroir, a journey that explores the link between healthy soil and the flavor and health of your food. I'm your host, Sarah Harper. That clip was from Hugh Kent, a blueberry grower in Florida, who has impressed top chefs and children alike with the incredible tastes that come from his real organic blueberries. More about the regenerative farming practices he uses to get that fantastic flavor later in our feature interview with him. In our last episode, we got into the issue of standards and how thinking about regenerative in comparison to the organic standard could present some challenges. It could be easy to see that discussion as being against organic certification. That's not the intent. Rather, I was trying to explore the limits and challenges of certification systems as the primary way of knowing, of verifying the outcomes of a dynamic way of farming like regenerative agriculture. It gets into the point that regenerative has a lot to do with the mindset and the motive and the differences in the land where it's practiced. And standards have a hard time factoring in all those variables. 
In this episode, in addition to learning more about how soil health contributes to outstanding flavor in food, we also explore how this certification challenge is true for the organic system as well. As you will learn from Hugh, much of the blueberry industry is moving toward hydroponics, or growing the fruit in a nutrient-fed system with water or some other medium, instead of soil. Yet in the U.S., this way of growing is allowed to be considered organic, so long as it doesn't use synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. To differentiate his organic produce grown in soil, Hugh has also been involved with the Real Organic Project. But once again, I'm left to wonder if either of these certifications really captures the regenerative way that Hugh is building up his soil. We'll let you decide. Listening to Hugh talk about how top chefs rave about the standout taste of his blueberries and how he attributes this difference to the fact that the berries are grown in healthy soil, it's a perfect example of what this podcast is about, about how terroir is detectable in so much more than just wine. Here's my interview with Hugh Kent of King Grove Farms. Hi, Hugh. How are you? Hi, Sarah. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. Good. Well, first, let people know um, where you are, the name of your farm, and and what you grow. I'm in central Florida, which is uh, the old part of the state, what emerged from the ocean first, so where there's a central ridge that runs along the um, the middle part of the state called the Mount Dora Ridge, and it's uh, quite beautiful. A lot of topography here, not a, not the flat part of the parts of the state most people are used to. Where the name of the farm is King Grove Organic Farm. It's an old family farm started by a guy named John King in 1874, and he moved down here with his young family. He went by um, steamship from Buffalo to Savannah and horseback from Savannah to Eustis, Florida, which is uh, of course is this not that long ago? You know, it's, it was a while ago. It wasn't that long ago. 150 years. So he started the farm and uh, sold it to one of my ancestors in 1890. And I bought it from my family members in 2003. It used to be a citrus grove, and like most of the farms in this area. And we, we started blueberries about 12 years ago and started uh, organic from scratch. Uh, didn't go through any transition period, but uh, we knew that's how we wanted to do it. That's, you know, maybe it's just my ignorance about where blueberries are grown, but I've thought of them as more of a cold weather plate, you know, kind of crop. Are they, they're not? Uh, Around the world now, they, and it's a function of some uh, dedicated plant breeding, not genetic modification, but plant breeding over many, many, many generations of plants. There is a Florida native blueberry, something very close to one, goes by different names, but there's a vaccinium. And these are uh, what we grow are basically crosses of the native plant and northern high bushes, which were developed in the northern parts of the United States. And um, now, of course, blueberries are grown virtually throughout the world. We have different seasons. They start in the central South American season for what we consume in this country and then Central, Central America, which competes directly with Florida and Georgia. And then the harvest throughout the United States goes up the East Coast. It goes to uh, North Carolina, New Jersey, Michigan, and, and then the Pacific Northwest in the fall before it starts over again. So it's a it's a uh, quite a long uh, domestic season as well as a long international season. And you're you're about to come into your harvest season, right? Yeah, that's why I seem a little distracted. And <laughs> we have. 
we have about 10 weeks to harvest and and make enough money to pay the bills for the entire year so it's it's very hectic um it's very intensive agriculture and the harvest is is always challenging um but of course that makes it fun <laughs> and this year we're doing something a little bit different which i'm very excited about we're we're a fairly small farm and uh but we're we're a wholesale operation mainly we you know, we grow way too much to sell through farmers markets and um, and and retail, we have to go through the through the wholesale channels. We're trying to sell more and more retail because that's where we find the people who appreciate the quality that we grow. Mm-hmm. But we've we've always had to rely on um, on uh, third parties uh, for packing a few years ago, up until a few years ago for cold storage, up until last year. Um, this is the first year that we'll do everything here on the farm. So wow. we pick and sort and pack refrigerate and then ship all from the same location without uh, any reliance on other people which which uh which i feel really good about because our niche has always been the highest quality that we can possibly produce and i think we're we're there and last year was the the missing link cold storage um for us i think one of maybe we'll talk about this later but a quality difference has to do with how quickly Blueberries uh, get down to 34, 35 degrees, oh. uh, where their longevity goes way up. And um, lots of people uh, believe that the nutritional value goes hand in hand with that. So uh, the longer they stay at ambient temperature, 80, 90 degrees when they're picked, or even in the 50s, um, they're losing nutrition, they're losing quality, they're losing flavor, taste, freshness. Unlike commercial third party packing houses, we don't have to do that. So we can go from the field and immediately sort and pack and then right down to 34 degrees in our own uh, cold room here. So that that makes a huge difference instead of maybe 36 or 48 hours um, with the berries spending their time in the mid to upper 50s, um, goes right down to the temperature where it stays until it, it gets to the customer. Yeah, well, and um, tell tell me about uh, the flavor and the uniqueness of your berries because I learned about you because Jill Clapperton, our our uh, co host here, um, you know, had experienced them and had and had met you and talked with you and just was wowed by by your berries. And you know, she's being a plant scientist, of course, is curious as to why, and she knows she knows all the links between how things are grown and that that affects the nutrient value and all of that. So maybe tell tell everybody a little bit about you know, that discussion or what Jill kind of took from that since we don't have the benefit of having her here right now. <laughs> uh, I wish she were here um, <laughs> because I, I'm not sure I understand it completely. <laughs> um, I, a lot of times I think um, I, I do my best farming when I, I get out of the way mm-hmm. and I do as little as possible, um, let the soil take over and and uh, let the plant do what it knows how to do. Um I find myself taking more and more of that attitude as time goes on. The less interventionist I can be, the better the quality seems to be. Um, but we we grow uh, in soil. Our entire operation is designed around improving, um, really doing more, nothing more or nothing less than improving soil quality. Uh, and this is increasingly rare in in blueberries, especially the ones that are grown in the springtime. Um, most of our, most of the blueberries consumed in this country now comes from Mexico, the ones that are grown in in the spring. Some come from Chile, then Peru, and then Mexico. But the lion's share of organic blueberries are coming out of Mexico now. 
and they're hydroponic. So huh. they're grown in they're they're grown in plastic pots or plastic bags with an inert substrate in them instead of soil. They have something like coconut coir or something else that's lifeless. And then there's a nutrient uh, feed that is dripped through that pot or through that bag, and that's how they that's how they grow them. It's mm-hmm. an ex- it couldn't be any different a growing system uh, than what we do. It, it, really, if you see them side by side, it's it's very dramatic. Unfortunately, they're allowed to be called organic only in this country. Is the USDA allow that? Nowhere else in the world can you get away with labeling hydroponic produce as organic, but in the United States. At the moment, you can, hmm. um, but we we grow uh, what's called real organic. We're involved with the Real Organic Project, which is an advocacy group of farmers that are trying to raise this consciousness that um, that that the USDA organic label allows hydroponics and it allows um, CAFO uh, operations. Also, um, that's in my view, that's not allowed under the law at all. But hmm. the USDA does not enforce it. Real Organic Project does. So uh, if you have that label as we do, the Real Organic Project label on top of the USDA label, you're getting soil grown organic produce. Um, that's that's and- great to let people know that. I've heard of the Real Organic Project, but I I wasn't as uh, clear on that soil piece, you know, that that's a big, a, a big, a big part of that. Um, and well, and that gets into um, regenerative and regenerative practices and um, what would you say are some of the, so obviously you're focused on soil health. How do you, you know, enhance the soil so that you get this great, you know, taste? Our system, our system relies on, um, green manure. Mm-hmm. So most of our fertility and increasingly it's not all of our fertility yet. Um, I wish it were, we're getting there. We try and be better organic farmers every year. Uh, but we, we grow uh, a lot of the food for the plants in the, the rows in between the plant rows, so in the middles. Um, and we, we cover crop there, and we also allow Mother Nature to go ahead and grow what, what she wants to grow. And I designed and fabricated specialized mowing machines and mulching machines that will take that, uh, take that area in between the plant rows, uh, uh, mow it, mulch it and throw it up on the beds where it feeds the plants. Mm. It forms two, provides two functions. One of them is, is food. And the other, as that, as that um, organic matter decays, <clears throat> excuse me, decays and is worked on by the that, uh, microbiotic community, but it, it's also uh, uh, a thatch develops there. And that's what we use for the majority of our weed suppression also, which is, of course is, the biggest challenge in agriculture, let alone organic agriculture, weed control is always an issue. Mm-hmm. But I think what what we have going now is uh, a very complex and uh, poorly understood system, intricate universe of uh, of physics and biology and chemistry that's going on in that soil. We try and get the microbes as healthy as possible. We don't. We don't know who they are. We don't necessarily know what they do. We don't have names for them. Um, I have a I have a Cornell uh, ag professor cousin, and I I asked her. I said, "Well, hey, I, I just heard that you you don't you only you only can identify ten percent of the microbes in this universe of of creatures that are living that are in healthy soil." And she said, "Well, no, that's actually kind of generous. Somewhere between one and ten percent." Really? Yeah. Oh my we goodness. don't have names for them. Huh. We don't. 
understand them very well. We don't know what they all do. <clears throat> Excuse me. We know that a lot of them exist only in relationship to others. Um, it's extraordinarily complex, um, which, which I think, to get back to your question, <laughs> is the answer to why soil-grown, um, carefully tended soil-grown produce tastes so much different than anything else. Mm -hmm. It tastes different than, um, than conventional because it's got so much more biological activity in the soil. It tastes vastly different than hydroponic because um, there's almost no biological activity going on in that soil. It's the only system where there is this, um, this whole universe of interaction in the rhizosphere and outside of it be between the plant and, and the soil, all the microbes that live in the soil, um, basically farming the soil itself on behalf of the plant. Of course, you, you and Jill understand this, I think, much better than I do. Um, but I, I see it happen, and I, I, see, I see the plants adjusting. Um, I, I do believe that they are able to change the chemistry around them in order to, um, in order to grow, develop um, everything they need above ground, including the ability to fight off some of the pests and, uh, that would otherwise bother them. So um, I, I think they, I, I've watched the plants almost as if they have an immune system, mm. which is external. It's not maybe in the plant itself, but if you take it as a whole integrated, an all integrated thing, then uh, all of this interaction with the soil um, and the plant and the changes that they, they both can create with each other um, allows them to adapt to various stresses, whether they're water-related or food-related or pest-related. Um, remarkable thing to watch. Yeah, I've heard uh, soil health uh, scientists and experts in, at conferences talk about it as uh, like the soil model is like our gut system, but inside out. So our gut, you know, is doing all this stuff internally. the The plants have to do it, you know, externally through the through the soil. But the same things are happening. That there's a remarkable similarity. And and you know, to your point about the nutrients that are getting in, the difference between hydroponic. Um, there's an interesting thing that I'm starting to see more and more as I look at regenerative because there's a big push for fake meat, you know, to replace, you know, to replace meat, and uh, as a virtuous thing and all of that. But there's there's studies more and more that are looking at even if there is the same nutrient profile or even a higher nutrient profile, like say iron or something in the fake meat, it's not bioavailable when you eat it because of what they had to do to uh, the oils and the, to texturize the the, the meat. <laughs> um, and so the result is that it can look on the label like it's the same thing when it's functionally not. And I'm wondering if there's a similarity maybe with hydroponic, like there could be some of the same nutrients there because they were put in with the form, with the, the feed, you know, the feeder fluid, but how it got in is, you know, different than what the plant is used to. And so how it puts it down and then how, how, how we digest it. It's just a really interesting area of, of uh, understanding what really the benefit of the soil gives us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, you put your finger on it. The difficulty is that our measuring metrics are way behind, um, are way behind. They're, they're yeah. still so primitive. Mm -hmm. So we, we, if we don't even know what these microbes are, are we really able to 
do a competent job of evaluating um, what the value is of the food. And I, I would argue that there, it's very significant that our gut microbiome, which is a similarly complex universe that exists in our digestive system, co-evolved with soil microbiome over eons. So we developed as an animal over all of these eons, eating this food grown in soil. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe they're completely complementary systems and and we definitely need soil in order to have a healthy gut. We need a healthy gut in order to have a healthy body. Uh, So I think that that's, and, and I think that's also related to taste. And we go back to that question you asked about, well, why does, why do our berries taste different? Why do they taste so good? And I'm, and I continue with the feedback we get is extraordinary from, from, from all over, including from very sophisticated palates and professional chefs. And we get, we get an enormous positive feedback. And I'm asked that question constantly. And I don't have a good, I don't have a great answer, but I, I think what makes the most sense to me is that our bodies know what's good for us. And we can be fooled. The, the, the soil, the food scientists are very sophisticated at this. They're very good at it. They're very good at using things like soluble sugars to get our bodies to have a certain physical reaction after we eat processed food. And our bodies are fooled into thinking, wow, I got all this energy. That, that felt great. This must be good for me. Let's have more of it. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to get the body to respond. I think it's an artificial one and a dangerous one and a, uh, an unhealthy one. But on the other side, we, we do have, I think, a natural, uh, a natural desire to eat what's good for us. And when we have a good piece of produce, it tastes good. And that's an evolved uh, mechanism feedback loop. If this tastes good, I'm going to have more of it. If I have more of it, my body's going to be healthier. I'll live longer. I'll reproduce. You know, it's the it's the whole evolutionary chain. So, uh, we we I do think we like the taste of things that are good for us, and I I see that all the time with uh, with little kids. We we have children eat our berries all the time, and they just light up. I think they know they their bodies know what's good for them, mm-hmm. and and I I I don't. You know, I don't have the science, but I really find it hard to believe that we can replicate that with a simplistic solution of, um, you know, some primary and secondary nutrients that we drip through a inert growth media. <laughs> it's like McDonald's. You know, you can you can make a big, big beautiful blueberry, big beautiful tomato. You know, you uh, very quickly. It's like McDonald's. You can make somebody really big by feeding them McDonald's every day, but. Um, I would I would argue that it's it's not the same thing. It's really not the same kind of food at all. You know, but the thing is, we go to those systems because they're easier or they're, you know, they're scalable or you know, there are all sorts of reasons why people, you know, move in that direction. And I think that's kind of a similar thing that we see in in agriculture in general. There's a there's a reason why agriculture moved toward, you know, there's a lot of criticism about you know, big food and cheap food and cheap food policy. And and I'm certainly critical of it too, but I, I grew up in Kansas. And so I grew up kind of in the midst of it. I kind of understand, I think what, what so much of the inter, the interesting conversations I'm having with people like you, it all comes back to going back to nature, being, being seeing yourself as an assistant to nature, a constant curious companion almost. Um, and that that's your role <laughs> as opposed to, I have to control this. I have to, 
it all depends on me. You know, it all depends on the right decisions I make and the, the chemicals I apply and the, you know, the whole system that you're, it's a management system that agriculture has become, which is more expensive and gives you actually not, not a superior outcome, but we feel like we have more control, you know? So it seems like there's a real appeal on that level. Maybe you could speak to. Oh, I, I, I'm just stuck on what you said. I love that. The constant curious <laughs> companion. Um, <laughs> That's beautiful. I I think that's absolutely right. It's so much different than what I see with conventional agriculture and this desire to make it sterile, except for the monocrop you're working with. Anything you see out there, just get rid of it. We're just going to clear the road and just have this one plant uh, try and survive and and do well. And I, I just think it's really misguided. You know, it takes a while to get confidence in this because initially, uh, it, it's really disconcerting, and and uh, especially when you don't have a lot of organic growers in your area, uh, you have to see results before you gain confidence. But uh, but uh, I think I'm past that point, and it and it's I'm I'm a real I'm a real true believer. Um, and I, you know, I had this conversation with Dan Barber, the chef, and who you know well, and and he, he the guy's wonderful, and he's just got such a he's got such an inquisitive mind, and he, he just he wants he just takes it all in. And he asked, you know, more, and and he was really about the only person who kept pressing me about the flavor of these blueberries. And he said, he said, okay, why do they taste so good? And I said, I, I'm not sure, Dan. They're grown in soil. Well, <laughs> give me more. I said, well, it's real organic. You know, it's a uh, uh, we don't cut any corners. It's all. And he kept pressing me. Well, more. Tell me more. Uh, well, that doesn't explain it. And I had to think about it, and then I and then I think. He, you know, he inspired me to a, another perspective, which is, uh, you know, gets out there a little bit. We almost get into quantum physics or or metaphysics even. I think it's about life. It's about life energy in a, a farming field, in a in a in a cropping field. You know, when you get you get down to the quantum physics and and the recognition that we're largely just energy as opposed to matter, that kind of thing makes you think. And when I go out in, in my field, um, there's an extraordinary amount of life. Mm. And of course, there's this life below ground that we don't see. And it's microscopic that we've talked about. This incredible universe that's happening in healthy soil. But there's also a lot of life above ground that you can see. So I go out and inspect the field. And we're lucky enough to be surrounded by some well-managed property. Some of it's ours and some of it's other people's. But there's good, healthy woodlands and wetlands uh, around here and a lot of wildlife. And so this blueberry farm is in the middle of a thriving, healthy ecosystem. And I see all kinds of things on my plants. Some of them, some of them I know, some of them I don't know. Some of them I suspect may be beneficial. Some of them I suspect might not be if they got out of control. But it's an extraordinarily active, um, vibrant, living uh, environment. So the, the plants have all kinds of bugs and, and things that are walking on them and flying by. We have, we have pollinators out there that they just pretty much finished up our flowers and now done being pollinated and the berries are forming. But when we have the flowers out, we don't just have uh, honeybees that, that we bring in in order to help pollinate, but we have, uh, there's a native Florida, uh, a bumblebee. There's but there's bumblebees. There's wasps. There are butterflies. There's all kinds of um, other creatures that are out there doing the pollination for us. And 
I'll give you one more example about about this uh, intricacy that we don't understand. We we sometimes have uh, uh, mite problems in the buds that you know is pretty familiar for blueberry growers, and we'll share those with the academics at the University of Florida periodically and say, okay, what do you see in here? Should we be concerned something's getting out of control? And they their response is usually, wow, we've never seen that before. So they look at they look at some of these things under high powered microscopes and they say, well, you have you know we have these mites that we haven't seen before. Hmm. But you also have a whole bunch of beneficial mites that we haven't seen before. Or there's so and this almost gets a little creepy when you think about you know, <laughs> all, all these little things that are living in your in your blueberry buds. But hmm. the reality is that's what we're like as animals, right? We have extraordinary amounts of little creatures in and around our bodies that that allow us to live we couldn't live without them mm-hmm. um, so this is this is happening um this is happening everywhere from a microscopic to a you know a recognizable scale in in our farm and i really enjoy it i just see all all kinds of things that eat, passing through or flying over or walking through or you know lingering on the plants or um you know, you have to look carefully. It's not like there's this big creepy infestation out there. It's just that there's a lot of life. Yeah. And I think a lot of life above ground, below ground, uh, it creates a different kind of food than you find in a more sterile farming environment. Yeah. Oh, of course. And, you know, uh, I think people are starting to realize that there's, at least I hope, that there's this whole world underground and and I keep saying, you know, like, why, why are we exploring space? Why are we exploring the deep sea? Yeah, we should be yeah. exploring the soil. Like it's the thing that we're most connected to. And we still don't know it, but that, but even though you can't understand all of what's going on, you do get a, a sort of a, a high level understanding by looking at if there's, cause the life underground is fed by the, the life that is fed by the roots. So it's fed by, you know, if you see a lot of plants, different species of plants above ground, it's going to be reflected in what's going on underground. If you see just one plant or, you know, just a, a very sterile, like you said, uh, a very sterile growing environment, just focus on one thing. Well, you're starving the, you know, the microbiome underneath it too. Yeah. I think it's a great metaphor for our treatment of the entire planet. If we rec- we, I think if you recognize all these systems are interconnected, then at some point you have to step back and say, well, Wow, the whole the whole thing, this whole you know third rock from the sun, it's it's all one big living uh, system. Mm-hmm. The, the Earth is is living. Just uh, watched something interesting yesterday. Somebody talking about how our climate changes throughout the year because the the Earth basically breathes differently. You know, when the northern hemisphere starts to leaf out in the spring, you change a lot of the atmosphere just based on all of these forests and plants changing their their cycle. So you have. There, there's this constant uh, movement and change and interrelationship on, on this whole macro level. And then it goes all the way down, like you're saying, to a microscopic level. Yeah, I wish we'd, I wish we'd get a handle on all this before we um, export our current thinking out into other, other areas of the universe. <laughs> it's like we, got, we have some things to clean up here first, mm-hmm. make our planet a little healthier. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm wondering too. You know some of what's going on, obviously, and you you know you, you plant. You mentioned you plant different things in between the rows. Do you use a kind of science to decide which plants to plant in between the rows? How have you kind of made that decision about what things to encourage to grow in addition to your berries? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, that's evolved for me also. So initially, I relied on a lot of soil tests mm-hmm. and uh, try to identify what I'm deficient in and then amend that either directly. Uh, let's say I'm low in sulfur, so I'm going to put sulfur out, calcium, whatever. Um, and then and then started to look at different uh, possibilities for cover crops that would help fix some of those uh, nutrients and minerals and then and make them available to the uh, to the crop plant. I've backed off a little bit on that, and I tend now to be more trusting in uh, what Mother Nature grows. So I, I have this well, because theory. you have a restored system. You know, you have you have such a healthy system. So what grows is going to be healthy too. That's another thing. The difference between a place that's overrun with weeds, but it's been it's overrun with weeds, but the weeds that it's put, putting out are from a depleted system. That's a different that you know yeah. different things will grow than just naturally than a restored system. Yes. Yes. And I, I haven't heard that discussed very much, but I believe in that. And I believe that when you disturb soil, so let's say you take take a piece of land in Florida and you disturb the soil down to a depth where you're 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 turning up what's in the seed bank and getting it to a level of zero to two inches where it then gets enough light and air and water to germinate. Um, it's extraordinary what will grow. So some of these things might be six, eight inches a foot down. If you bring them up and they'll be dormant for a long, long, long time. If you disturb the soil and you bring them up, uh, you'll get um, very vigorous growth. And typically there are certain uh, weeds which will outcompete all the others in, in this part of the country anyway. And you can count on some of them doing very well. Nuts edge, uh, ragweed, there's all kinds of real beauties. but. Um, <laughs> I, I think what, what happens is uh, the earth has a natural tendency to try and heal itself. So if we don't continually pick the scab, we allow it to go ahead and make itself healthier. Over time, I do believe it tries to create productive topsoil for us. And, and around here, one of the initial plants that comes up is uh, indigofera. It's a hairy indigo. Um, it's a nitrogen fixer. Not much nitrogen in soil and sandy soil in Florida, but you'll see this plant uh, come up and it does an excellent job of taking nitrogen out of the air, fixing it in, in its root system. And then when that's plowed or, you know, when that's when that's allowed to decay, lightly plowed in, it, it, that becomes part of the soil chemistry. So I have seen over time an evolution from these initial pioneering opportunistic weeds that come up when you first disturb soil. And then as the soil gets a bit healthier over the years, you have other soil, other, other plants finding their way in there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I can't prove this, but I do think that nature's got a tendency to recognize its own, the deficiencies in the soil. And there are plants that will thrive in that deficient soil, which actually uh, over time, will make the soil less deficient. Have you, going back to the, the berries themselves, have you had them tested for different, you know, different qualities or properties or anything you could share about? Like, I'm sure like what Dan was, uh, Chef Dan was searching for, you know, any, anything you can tell us about like what's been found in the berry that makes it. <laughs> I don't, and I've been really curious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like had the nutrient couple... density and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think uh, Dr. Van Vliet has got a sample of mine out in, where is he, Utah or somewhere? Yeah, that's great. We interviewed him about the beef project. 
No, ask them what's going on with my berries. I <laughs> will <laughs> to come back around. <laughs> they, they were they were sent out there, um, uh, and I think he he came up with a budget for testing. They were sent out there with a. Um, some hydroponic berries, and uh, they, you know, there was, of course, it's expensive to do this kind of stuff. So they were looking for the funding to do it. I, I paid to ship them out there, but I didn't have the resources to say, yeah, go, go run them through the, <laughs> run them through the lab. So I'm hoping that happens at some point. Um, and I, I think that would be, that would be very useful. But uh, again, I'm not, I'm not convinced that there are. The metrics yet that we have the technology right. to for the reasons you were saying a lot of a lot of stuff with you know really synthetic stuff fake meats and so forth um they look good on paper they look good uh based on the on the measuring devices we have at this point and i don't know if those really tell the whole story i think our i think our bodies and you know society, society as a whole if you look at the health of our society that might be a better indicator of how, how good our food is at the moment. You know, I work with a lot of farm, farmers across the different parts of regenerative kind of spectrum and regenerative itself, that word is, is kind of reactive and people are trying to define it different ways and there's a battle over it and all of that. And, um, but I was struck by what you're talking about with organic, the battle that organic has with hydroponic or with, you know, or, or maybe even with organic and regenerative, you know, we see some, you know, differences about what that means there. Well, what, keeps coming to me is that it really is about there's such differences in in the places that you're growing things in the crops that you're growing but the the unifying thing is this you know companion to nature you know working with nature you know really always continuing to to enhance nature and but that's hard to certify you know you can certify it you know um, that you didn't use these pesticides or um but as you've seen with with the organic standard then things start splitting away and it gets, you know, like it's technically organic, but you know um, it's not what people think. And what, what seems like there's like two things that I want to get your impression on. One is if, if you know the farmer and you obviously you have a website, you sell direct to people. If you know the farmer and you know what they're doing, that is, that is a way that you can be more certain of what, what you're getting, obviously tasting it too. But then uh, the other end is like what Dr. Van Vliet's doing, and he's already found kind of like a chemical signature in grass-fed, in multi-species grass-fed animals, and it's it's a chemical signature that you can find that it's it's there. You can see it, so you can test for it. You can say this is whether just grass-fed because that's the other crazy thing that it's not the, the benefits from from meat are really not just grass-fed. It's multi-species grass-fed. It's this diversity. Mm. It's back to your point about it's life. It's access to diverse life that brings the benefit and um, but it's findable it's testable and i think that's going to be there in your berries and in in everything because it's just about like you said that the metrics catching up so in between like when the metrics catch up then you can go back to aggregating it all because it's all of a like you know it all has a signature but until then i think people have to just buy their berries directly from you <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like if you care about not everybody can do that for everything, but you pick, you know, you pick one or two things that you're going to really prioritize and you buy it directly from the farmer. I mean, is that happening more and more? Is your, is your direct sale going up or what do you think about that end of it? Cause I know that's gotta be a pain in the neck for farmers who are doing all this other stuff to then have to take on that side. It's a whole, you know, third job for you. Yeah. We're not great marketers. 
Um, <laughs> well, your I, berries I, are your marketing. Yeah. Well, I mean, my wife and I specifically, there are some good farmer marketers out there, but it's a, it's a talent. And, uh, I don't, you're right. It's hard. It's hard to find the time to be good at it also. But, um, yes, to answer your question, it's going very well. And, um, uh, we're very excited about it because really the people who care about the quality of what we do are the people that eat it. Almost mm-hmm. everybody else involved in the in the system of distribution is you know is just there to make money. Quality is not really that much of a concern for them. But you would um, think quality would be core to making money, and so often it isn't. That's what I find in these interviews too. Like the the retail, the processing side, it's about the size of the berry or the size of the. It's it's about all these things, the color or the these things that don't really yeah. they aren't really the taste. They aren't really the quality. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of shocking when you think about something like a blueberry, and it's yeah. not—it's a delicacy, right? So you yeah. know, wouldn't you really? Don't you really want to go? And it's a delicacy, and it's a—it's—it's a—it's a wonderful superfood, mm-hmm. and all of the cognitive benefits that they're recognizing are tied up in them. Um, but especially, you know, for the aging aging brain, um, wonderful stuff. So it—it's. It, it's, but but it, it remains frustrating going through wholesale and, and in our case specifically because so much of the market is now owned by the Mexican, by the U.S. multinationals that are down in Mexico. And they they have uh, almost all of the market now. We really can't compete. They pay a dollar an hour for their labor. Mm. And uh, that's not something we can do or want to do in this country. Um, and... And they're allowed to. They're al- they're almost entirely, if not entirely, hydroponic, and uh, growing in the plastic these plastic farms. They put out plastic ground cover. They put out plastic pots, and they cover them with plastic hoop houses. And they sh- they bring them here as organic. So on the shelf, they're in, unless you're really sophisticated and you follow this stuff, um, you know you're paying a premium for something that's uh, environmentally abusive and and. Uh, abusive on a human level too but that's the reality of it so in order to escape that system we have to go to retail we like to go to retail it's just getting the word out is tough um, so we keep trying and of course we find that word of mouth literally <laughs> you know, is is the best people eat them and um, and so it's grown quite quickly we're, we're more and more a retail operation now we, we ship around the country. Um, and we figured out we've been doing it for four years and we figured out how to use uh, uh, the best, most sustainable packaging we can. And we were able to send everything second day air and it arrives in great shape. And people tell us that um, because of the, our handling practices, they, they last for a month in their refrigerator, which is pretty astonishing. But most of them say that, you know, that they would last a month, but we ate them all in a couple of days. So. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Do you uh, so is what portion are you selling direct to consumers, and is that growing? Do you sell out of that portion, or you know, like if people want to sign up? I, I know I went to your website, so there's a mailing list. Like you sign up, and it could be notified, basically because you sell in season, you know, and so that they're yeah. not just sitting around waiting for you to, <laughs> to come by anytime. Thanks for signing up. We we send out a we will send out a uh, we'll start on March fifteenth. We'll open up for sales starting on March fifteenth in just another week or so. So people are on the mailing list. They'll get notification that the website is live, and then we have um, we have rolling weeks. So the um, the I think we're 
we, we won't have much berries the first week that will sell out very quickly. And then we'll have more, you know, hopefully they'll continue to keep selling out as we go through the season, whatever we don't sell, you know, go, goes to short store shelves somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it's, um, um, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun we, we, um, it's fun and it's a way we can actually make, make this work financially. So it's a, it's just great to, to get the feedback from people because, um, I'm like a lot of people my age, when I taste good produce, um, I, I like slap my forehead and I say, I haven't had anything like this since I was a kid. Yeah. And that's what's happened to our food system. Mm -hmm. Um, my, uh, my mother grew up on a farm in New Hampshire. It's a family farm back to the 1600s. And it, we used to eat, eat that produce a lot. And I find myself when I find good food now, I say, I haven't had that since, you know, I had it on my grandfather's farm. Mm -hmm. um, Dave Chapman's tomatoes. I don't know if you, you've, you've had long wind farm tomatoes that are a good example. No. You know, a real organic uh, tomato. Mm -hmm. uh, boy, when you have this stuff and you realize you haven't tasted something like that in decades, mm -hmm. it, it really makes you stop and think. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing that I've, I've heard people talk about too, that there's, um, you know, the, the idea of a cheap food policy um, can make some, you could, you could kind of wrap your mind around it. If you want to, if you want to think about, well, people need to be able to afford food. But when you think about the consequence of not getting what we need from food is disease, then, you know, we're going to pay for it on one end or the other. <laughs> Um, and so yeah. prioritizing, you know, health from the beginning or this restorative, the restorative ability that these nutrients that are absorbable, because that's the key thing. I mean, we wouldn't need a whole supplement industry if we, if we could, it's, we're designed to get it from food. We get it better from, in better form from food. Um, but um, we don't know which foods have it anymore. Right. And yeah, that's a great point because the, uh, it's expensive to be alive, and um, but you can spend your money on on healthcare, or you can spend it on good food. Mm -hmm. I really think there, if you look at those graphs and you see how much we spend on food and how much we spend on on healthcare now, um, you can you can see why uh, saving money on one is costing us more on the other end. And and I, there's another there's another. Uh, element to it, which is a little less personal, which is just that a lot of these costs of cheap food are externalities that we foist off on other people and on the planet. Mm -hmm. So sure, we can have cheap corn, uh, we can have we can have cheaper supposedly organic hydroponic berries, but what's the cost of that? Um, what happens to uh, what happens to all that stuff that you're dripping through? Uh, a hydroponic system and it's just going uh, through a plastic weed mat into the ground and now you're polluting the ground you're putting plastic residues in the ground you have plastic residues in the food the synthetic estrogens that are involved in that you have an uh you know an extra unfathomable amount of plastics that are used in these systems that are thrown out after three to five years they go in a dumpster they go in a landfill somewhere and they start over again with them so there's 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 all kinds of externalities in different growing systems that that are either negative or positive. And so much of these cheap food externalities are just hidden costs in the form of 
pollution, water pollution, land pollution, uh, and human pollution, yeah. and a lot of the externalities in uh, truly organic systems are beneficial ones. They're 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 uh, not just good for the soil, but they also retain a high habitat value for what lives around your farm. Um, there's 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 more than just the crop plants on a healthy organic farm. It's supposed to be part of the whole thing. You need to have a farm plan where you take care of your woodlands, wetlands, and wildlife as well as your crop areas. And these are these are ecologically and psychologically valuable lands to have around human communities. And people like seeing these well-tended and well-cared-for green spaces and that are healthy. And um, they 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 help a lot. Um, so those are all those are all costs that. Um, we don't factor in when we go to the store and we say, oh, wow, you know, well, that's 50 cents more for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of these things are hidden. So give people your website so they want to sign up and, and get your berries, they can. Sure. It's it's easy. It's king, K-I-N-G, grove, G-R-O-V-E dot com. Yeah. Well, that is- everything's pretty self-explanatory when you go from there, if you dig a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for people that maybe are um, in the store looking around, when they look for things, does hydroponic have to be labeled hydroponic? No. Okay. And so if you, uh, now it's an interesting discussion I had with a well-known natural food retailer a few years ago when we were, we were talking about this. And, uh, and he said, you know, Hugh, I, I can't hire somebody to hang out in the produce section and say, these USDA organic certified blueberries are different than these USDA certified organic blueberries. And here's why this one's a little more expensive, but here's why it's worth it. And yeah, you know, you sort of realize that's, that's a problem. Um, They can't do that. Mm -hmm. That's sort of becomes the farmer's job. Again, we have to go out there and explain what's going on here. Luckily we have advocates like you that are helping us. Um, and maybe the word is starting to get out, but um, as far as hydroponics go, and and b- blueberries are not the only crop that are affected this way. Tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, greens, the, and more every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I, you know, if anybody takes away anything from what I have to say today, it's it's that uh, in in the United States, according to the USDA, hydroponics are considered organic and only in the United States. Nowhere else in the world can you get away with this. Not in the EU, not in Australia, not in South America. You you cannot label hydroponics as organic. Mm. Only in the US. So you have to be wary of that. Well how do you how do you know? And um, the Real Organic Projects was started by farmers five years ago. We were one of the initial pilot farms. There's now over eleven hundred. It's growing quickly. Um, we had, there's a label you have to look for the label. It says Real Organic Project. Um, anybody who's interested in this stuff, I encourage them to go to that website. And and there's an extraordinary amount of information there. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what you have to do if you don't know the farmer. And to go back to your point on that, which I think is wonderful, Sarah. I think I think that's it. If you really want good food, you you need to find your farmers and get to know them. Ask questions about their growing practices. It's hard to do, especially hard to do for most of the people who don't don't live near farms. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you know you're having to spend your time on the internet, but um, but that's the only surefire way. 
Um, I would say that as far as organics and hydroponics go, um, another one is the Rural Organic Project label. They do not allow that kind of thing. So if you see that label on there, it's an add-on label. So the USDA Organic Certified plus the Real Organic Project label. So you can't have you can't be Real Organic Project Certified if you're not first USDA Certified. You have to you have to have that under your belt, and then they scrutinize you and they say, okay, but you know USDA allows you to get away with this stuff. Are you doing that? He says, no, we're not. So <laughs> and they say, okay, you can you can use our label. Yeah. Um, so that's that's another way to that's another way to do it, and that's hopefully that'll be increasingly recognizable on the store shelves. Well, also our little way of con- contributing to this is on our on our public website, globalfoodfarm.com. We also have a page that's called Finding Better Food, and I'm happy to add you to that page um, because uh, you know Jill's worked with you. Jill knows you, and you know we don't just throw people up there. We you know we we. Uh, but I just remembered we have that page and I'm like, yeah, you'd be a perfect addition to that. It's, it's, uh, it's farmers in our network or that Jill knows um, and uh, that are on the regenerative journey and that are uh, doing, di- doing it in different ways, but they are willing to share what those ways are. And people can then decide for themselves if that's, that's what they want to, to be their one thing, whether it's a grass fed uh, beef from, um, Alberta, Canada, from our, our our friend Craig Cameron, who we just interviewed last week, or um, you know, whole grain wheat berries from North Dakota, from our uh, farmer Deanna Mozinski. There, um, it's you know, they're all selling online direct to consumers. Now, it's a tiny fraction of what you know, but it's a beginning and it's a way. So that is uh, globalfoodfarm.com/slash/betterfood, and we'll be happy to add you there too. So the, a link to your website, you know, so that we can help people, you know, find in an aggregate way, you know, who are, who are people that are doing these amazing things? Cause what you're doing is amazing. It's a mission. It's, it's also, it's a living, it's wonderful uh, for many reasons, but it's uh, it's truly, I think, uh, you know, a, a personal mission that uh, we're all benefiting from. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm great to hear you're doing that because it's uh, one thing to educate people. It's another thing to uh, share with them your work in, in vetting farms and farming systems and shortcut that process for them. Cause it's, you know, it's a really busy world. There's a lot of noise out there and uh, to have people you trust acting as your proxy to go out and find good food and good farms. That's, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Hugh, and I will let you get back to the harvest. Yeah. <laughs> great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Tasting Terroir, a podcast made possible by a magical collaboration between the following companies and supporters, all working together to help farmers, chefs, food companies, and consumers to build healthier soil for a healthier world. Rhizoterra. Owned by Dr. Joe Clapperton, Rhizoterra is an international food security consulting company providing expert guidance for creating healthy soils that yield tasty, nutrient-dense foods. Check us out at rhizoterra.com. That's R-H-I-Z-O-T-E-R-R-A.com. And the Global Food and Farm online community, an ad-free global social network and soil health streaming service that provides information and connections that help you apply the science and practice of improving soil health. Join us at globalfoodandfarm.com. And from listeners like you. 
who support us through our Patreon account at patreon.com slash tastingterroir. Patrons receive access to our full-length interviews and selected additional materials. Patrons will also have the opportunity to submit questions that we will answer on the podcast. Tune in next week to hear more interviews and insights with myself, Sarah Harper, and Dr. Jill Clapperton, as well as the regenerative farmers, chefs, and emerging food companies in the global food and farm online community and beyond. If you like our work, please give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and for helping us get the word out about this new resource to taste the health of your food. Until next week, stay curious, keep improving, and don't stop believing that better is possible when knowledge is available.